Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 80 of the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky and Sue among my all-time heroes is the legendary Bruce Lee. So I'm incredibly excited about today's guest. Yes, me too. She is the executive producer of the show Warrior, which is entering season two on Friday, October 2nd on Cinemax. She is also the author of the brand new book, Be Water, My Friend. And of course, she also happens to be Bruce Lee's daughter. Shannon Lee is here. Shannon, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited for our chat. So it's been a really big year for your dad. The documentary Be Water was a gigantic hit for ESPN. Mm-hmm. You've got season two of Warrior launching. You've got the brand new book about your dad's philosophy on life. What does that feel like as his daughter to have all this stuff going on simultaneously in one year? Well, I think it's pretty phenomenal. I think it's a pretty important year, actually, for <laughs> for all of these things to be yeah. happening. Um, so, and, and really, it was divine timing. I, I it was not, you know, you know, when you start working on a project years in advance, you you don't really know exactly when it's all going to come to fruition. And the fact that all these things have happened all at once um, is is pretty phenomenal. When you were growing up. When did you first realize who your dad was to the world? Who? I think that that's a continuing realization over time. I mean, certainly um, um, uh, now that I'm much older, um, it's, it's, it continues to surprise me, but at least the surprise is less surprising, if that makes any sense. But, yeah, um, yeah. but you know, when I was a kid, it's like, you, you you only understand your immediate experience. So for me, it was like, oh, yeah, my dad's in that movie. Cool. You know, and then at some point you go like, oh, yeah, and like all these people are his students. And, oh, yeah, he created a martial art. And, you know, but like when you're a 10-year-old, you know, you just want to play with your toys and hang out with your friends and go to school and all that kind of stuff, which is, which was my life. I didn't live or grow up in Hollywood per se. You know, it wasn't, we weren't friends with a bunch of celebrities. I wasn't on movie sets after my father passed away. So I think it took some time. And I think the big difference was each time that I took a new step in my life, it opened a new door in, in terms of that realization. So, you know, when I started acting, that was a whole new experience. When I started running, um, you know, the, leg- the, the business around my father's legacy, that was a whole new experience. And it introduced me to a whole new realm of people. And I continue to be amazed um, at his impact, how far reaching it is, how uplifting and positive it is. And, and it's, it's really a beautiful thing. So at what age did you start to incorporate the whole idea of be water into your life? (laughs) Well, listen, I've always heard the quote. I always knew the quote um, growing up. But until I really started to sit with his writings, um, I, I, I really didn't. Um, think of it probably in a, in a lot of the ways that most people think of it. You hear it, you go, oh, that's really beautiful. That's really cool. Yeah, water is great. Why wouldn't you want to be like water? You know, but then to really spend the time 
um, and the energy to delve into what does that really mean? How could I really apply that? I have to say it's an ongoing process and the writing of my book was a huge deeper dive into the understanding of that um, and the really the breaking it down and that leading to the other um, um, the other philosophies and the ways in which they relate. I have to say like the writing of this book has made me really step up my water game, if you will. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing this book and, mm. and putting it out there because Steve and I, we don't like to get into a lot of politics on the show, mm-hmm. but we are in a time right now where I feel like this book is so important mm. um, for to reach people. You know, sometimes it sounds so simple. It's like Rodney King, can't we all just, you know, get along? Yeah. But you, you, you lay out all these tools um, for people to be able to to live by and incorporate into into their lives. So, mm-hmm. if I were to ask you, because the book is so dense and we don't have all the time in the world for you to give <laughs> us everything, what would you say are the most important things in your book that you could relate to people? Hmm. Wow. Um, pick and choose. Pick and choose. Um, I, I would say that one of them is this notion of of um, emptying your cup, of letting go of your preconceived notions mm-hmm. about people, about the world. Um, uh, this notion of, um, y- you know, we all walk into uh, rooms and situations with what we think we know as the truth. And we are so... We are so um, we are so like staunchly practiced in what we believe to be true that we look for evidence of our truths and we don't look, look for to take in like the whole understanding of something. And so, uh, you know, I make a, a big case in the book for not being, not, not parsing everything into right and wrong or good and bad, but to like release judgment and really encounter what's happening as just what is happening and how do I want to respond to it? And is there something more I need to know? Is there something to learn? Is there something to, uh, to, to, to consider for myself that I might need to do differently or. Shannon, is this kind of that idea of pliability that you wrote about? Yeah, it's pliability. It's, 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 it's this sense of like formlessness. It's like, I don't need to come in here already with my strategy, I I talk about my father as a martial artist and as a fighter. It's like, if you jump into the ring with like, these are the, these are the three moves I know. And first I'm going to use this move and then I'm going to use this move and then I'm going to use this move. And then you encounter somebody that has an entirely different arsenal than you. You know, if you're not prepared to adapt and change and learn as you go, then you're going to get your ass handed to you. <laughs> Quite yeah, frankly, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, I I just I just 
think it's really interesting that my father did not believe in competition. He did not believe in competition as a model for personal growth or for living or for martial arts, quite frankly. You know, it's like we're not in competition with a, with one another. We're, we're supposed to be in collaboration. We're supposed to be learning from one another. I think that that um, that, that is, I, I talk about in chapter four, this notion of the opponent. And I say, I'm not talking about the opponent as your enemy. I'm talking about the opponent as your sparring partner, the person that you get in the ring with to mm. make you better. Yeah. 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 Your, your dad talked a lot about um, encouraging people to, to be who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one, um, one quote that you had, it was actually from E.E. E. Cummings. Um, it yeah. says, it takes courage to grow up and be who you really are. Mm-hmm. It does because there is no um, there's no roadmap for that. Only you can find it. Um, there's no where to point to get the validation that um, that you want. Right? Like we all want validation. We all sure. want outside validation. We all want to be have people say, "Oh my God, you're doing it right. That's awesome. You're doing such a great job." Right? Um, and we all look around us to see, like, "Oh, what is, what are the successful people doing? How can I be successful like that too?" And it's a scary path to walk. The path to finding oneself and knowing oneself is scary because there's no barometer for it. You have to really learn who you are and learn to trust that and learn to step into that and own that entirely. You know, I remember your dad's quote, the the be water, my friend uh, 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 speech Mm. uh, that your dad used. And I, you know, I internalized it um, when I was pretty young and Mm -hmm. I'm a performer. I'm on radio and television and do a daily show and do a podcast, all that stuff. And, you know, I think that that idea of flowing is really, really important. Like when I'm doing a show and it's effortless Hmm. and it's just rolling along and I'm in the flow, I feel like that's what I aspire to. But part of that came from your dad's original speech. Yeah, no, um, I I love that you said you internalized it because I think there's a lot of stuff that we internalize um, just by encountering it and we don't necessarily realize it until we until we reach the level of our own maturity and our own awareness to realize like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing that thing that I that I heard about and 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 ran into so many years before. And I agree with you, this sense of flow. And and in the book, I really say, you know, look, yes, it's fine to say to be in the zone. Like if you're an athlete, we talk about them being in the zone in the midst of these short bursts of their performance. But what I'm saying is, we want to try to be in this flow where life is flowing and we're handling all of the ups and the downs and what's happening um, with as much sort of personal mastery as we can, as often as we can. Yeah, like your, your dad also, he talked about how um, our obstacles are some of our greatest teachers. Mm. And I, I believe, and, you know, myself as well as Steve, you know, my a majority of my career, I was a stand-up comic. So talk about rejection, you know, live, <laughs> you know, and having to deal with that. But, you know, it's that um, failure is something that I feel that a lot of people um, look as kind of like, look at as a negative thing. And your dad was saying that the goal isn't 
not to fail. The goal is to fail faster, you know, mm-hmm. so you yeah. can learn, learn, learn from it. Right. And I, I actually have a, a writer friend who had um, on her wall above her desk, and I love this quote so much because it says, fail, fail again, fail better. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Fail better. I love that. It's like, because look, I mean, mistakes are constant. They're always going to be there. And I feel so concerned in this place where we find ourselves right now where no one's allowed to make a mistake. And we're all so, so demonized for it. And, you know, to your point, it's like, mistakes are how we learn, you know, like, I didn't learn how to use a knife and fork until I I, until I did it really badly for a while, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and so, and so, you know, another great quote of his that speaks to this point is that the problem um, is is never the answer is never apart from the problem. The problem is the answer, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like it's like we want to avoid our problems. We want to like pretend like we don't make mistakes, but but actually, we have to delve into our problems and our mistakes in order to do better. So over the years, I'm a huge fan of your dad. Over the years, um, I have heard this story, and I, I think it might be true, but I'm going to bounce it off you. Okay. Your dad was the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong in 1959? Yes, it might have it been 58, but yes, he was the cha-cha champion. Mm-hmm. So how did dance play into your dad's work? You know, my father um, uh, is just such an active, live, uh, graceful, energetic spirit. When he was a kid, his nickname was Mo Siting, which means never sit still. (laughs) (laughs) And and so um, he, um, you know, uh, this idea of dance, and he grew up as a child actor. He was around creative people all the time. He even danced in his... um, film that he did at the age of 18. By the way, a sig- people that were a significant child actor, like he was almost a lead in a couple of those movies, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. He w- he was in 20-some-odd films as a mm-hmm. child. And the last one he did, I was going to say he cha cha in it, is a film called The Orphan, in-, in which he was the lead, and it actually went to, like, the Venice Film Festival in 1960, mm-hmm. I think. But anyway, um, dance, I think, played a huge part in his in his life and in his martial arts, it gave him a certain um, appreciation for rhythm, for for graceful movement. I think it helped him as an actor and as a performer, um, and and I think it informed um, his body and his ability to be so um, sort of majestically powerful in his movement. So you are the executive producer of the series Warrior. And you're entering season two, and it was based on a treatment that your dad wrote. How did you find that treatment, and what made you think that now was the time? Um, I had always heard the story of this treatment. Um, it had been part of our family, you know, history and storytelling for my whole life. Um, but it wasn't until I started looking after my father's legacy, and my mom sent down all the boxes of of my father's things that she still had. And I started going through them, and I came across the treatment. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, here's this thing that I've always heard about all my life." And but I was not in a position at that point to you know jump into trying to get it made. I, I didn't have those types of 
predatorial connections. And so it just kind of went back in a box and with a, with a hope that maybe one day I would be able to do something with it. Cut to Justin Lin, whom I had run into here and there over time, giving me a call and saying, hey, I've always heard this story about this treatment. Is it true? And I said, it's absolutely true. And he said, you wouldn't happen to know where that is. I was like, actually, it's in this box. Um, (laughs) And he was like, oh, my gosh, really, do you think I I could see it? And so we got together. I showed it to him. Everybody that has seen it has really commented on how well written it is. He's like, wow, your dad actually knew what he was what he was doing. And um, and and he said, would you ever want to make this? And I was like, would I ever? (laughs) Yes, please. But, um, but the important part was not so much that as it was that this would not have gotten made without Justin. And I'm not just talking about the fact that he had some clout in Hollywood and that he had some success. I'm talking about that. He was a person of, um, integrity, that he wanted to collaborate with me, that he wanted to make sure it stayed within the bounds of um, my father's legacy. And he said, we should make this show for sure, but we should only make it if we, we do it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, two episodes into the second season, and uh, I am so hooked. I mean, we talk about the writing. The writing is so good. The production is beautiful. Yeah, the production design is unbelievable. The the cost capturing that period, that late eighteen hundreds period. I mean, it's it's very detailed. The production design. It looks beautiful. Mm, yes, kind, you know what? It, you know what? It kind of feels like a little bit. It, it kind of has like a Peaky Blinders kind of feel to it. You know that kind of that darkness, that underworld. Um, and and what 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 kind of surprised me a little bit the dialogue the dialogue seems it feels very modern to me yes, yes. Um, there's that scene that I love so much and I'm not giving anything away to anybody but where uh, Sophie goes into the bar and is flirting mm-hmm. with uh, the the owner Dylan mm-hmm. and uh, after she leaves he just stares at her and says fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's such a perfect response and it's something I can hear somebody saying today totally totally and that was very purposeful and I have to really give credit to Jonathan Tropper our writer and showrunner who really um, helped build this world and um, and come up with so many of these amazing devices that we use. You know, it's a period piece, but we mm-hmm. wanted it to feel contemporary. We wanted audiences of today to be able to have access and really resonate with the material. And so we did a lot of work to make sure that, you know, uh, that the way people communicated not only was easily accessible, but also very intricately woven into the different characters, the way that they interact with one another. You know, there's devices we use where sometimes the the characters are speaking in Chinese and sometimes English and sometimes broken English and all to represent different perspectives on the show. Yeah, it feels like you're telling real Chinese stories. It feels like it feels like you're honoring that tradition and, and that history. How important is that for you? I mean, it's very important. Um, you know, my father was actually extremely masterful at at picking 
themes and stories to tell that represented his culture. And this is a particular, particularly dear story because not only is it a Chinese story, it's a Chinese-American story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father was born in San Francisco, and so he was an American Um, Even though he grew up in Hong Kong as a kid, he then came back um, as a citizen uh, when he was 18 and lived in this country for a number of years and, you know, married my mother and all that and, and, and all that sort of thing. And. And he was very good at, you know, because he had a a real keen desire to show um, authentic representation on screen, as well as authentic storytelling, he was always looking for um, these themes and stories. And so uh, to reflect that. And so this was very much a a part of, of that. Yeah, and, you know, you talk about the contemporary aspect of it, you know, that was the late 1800s, and you think about what's happening now with, you know, anti-Muslim sentiments and immigration, and it's sad to, to think that, wow, this is still going on. <laughs> I know. You know? Um, yeah. What, what, now, what, 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 now, if your dad were here today, what, what would his take be on what's going on in the world today? You know, I, I think he would be, um, look, he was at, at the time, because by the way, this was going on in his lifetime. It was going on in the late 1800s. It was going on in the 1960s, and it's going on in 2020. So, you know, his response was always to, first of all, model the behavior, right? Like be the change. Um, his response was to stand up for himself and stand for others as well. He believed in humanity. He believed in addressing people as human beings and not as, you know, their race, their gender, their background, their, their um, um, all of those sorts of things, right? So, so he he always wanted people to go for authenticity like being real and treating one another as real humans and so i think he would be distressed to see what's happening in this country and i think he would say you know say uh, um um same words, different song, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so. Well, right now I think much pliability is required by all of us, given yes. what's going on in the world right now. You know, yeah. your dad was born in the U.S., raised in Hong Kong, comes back to the U.S., mm-hmm. then went back to Hong Kong to make mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would imagine that there was sort of a, a natural tug between East and West with your dad. What do you think? For sure. I mean, I think I think it was more that the East and West tugged on him than Mm. than that he was tugged by it because my father was very dedicated to being himself and showing up as himself wherever he was. Um, I think that that was hard for people. I think that in the in the east he was too western and in the west he was too eastern and and he was like, look, man, I'm just me. Right. And like, by the way, I have things I've learned from the East and I have things I've learned from the West and they influence me. And, you know, I'm sure you probably have seen this. Um, My my father sat for an interview with a Canadian chat uh, chat show host Mm -hmm. back in 1971. And he asked me, said, do you so tell me now with all this that you've been doing, do you think of yourself as Chinese or do you think of yourself as North American? And my father said, you know, actually, how I like to think of myself is as a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Beautiful. wonderful. Sure. 
Exactly. You know, one of the things your dad and you write about this did always, and it's been helpful to you, is that he was big on journaling. Mm-hmm. Now, I know it's supposed to be a really valuable tool, but it requires real discipline that I don't think I possess, at least at this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did, what did, and I know you do it now. What did, what did your dad get out of journaling? What do people get out of journaling? So let me first put it this way to you, because I, 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 I want to be clear. My father did not keep a journal. Mm. So he did not have like um, a bound journal um, like a lot of us use today and write in it um, uh, in a very uh, 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 dedicated, practiced way. But he wrote on paper. And this is really all that I'm advocating for is like, is like engaging in a, it with your thoughts in a concrete way. And by the way, like, as far as I'm concerned, a to-do list can be journaling. Hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just a way of like organizing your thoughts, organizing your goals, organizing your time, uh, directing yourself in a direction. And yes, there, there are one of the points I make about the way that he journaled, which was really mostly on like loose leaf papers, sometimes Mm -hmm. in spiral notebooks, sometimes not. It's like a a little bit messy, but it's still hundreds of pages of writing. Um, Is that, is that um, the way he did it was so unique, which is that he did not None of the writings are negative or complaining or or gossipy or bashing or any of that kind of thing. And and look, like when I first started journaling as a kid, uh, that's how I wrote. I was like, oh, I'm so mad today. I blah, blah, blah. I'm so dumb. I can't believe I did this, you know. And and the thing is, is that when I go back and I look at that, um, that that just makes me go back to that place. It just makes me go like, wow, I was a mess, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And so, like, I really advocate for, like, uh, uh, proactive journaling that helps you, that is, like, process for you. And if you have to rage on the page, like, go for it, man. Like, sometimes you have to do a brain dump. But but then throw it away. Get Hmm. rid of it. You You don't need to hold on to that. You need to let it go. You know, when I think about your father, you know, I, I, I mean, I admire him so much for so many things. But, you know, I know that and, and I know that martial arts, you know, I, I don't know, tell me if this is accurate, that it really shaped who he became, you know, oh. right? I mean, it was totally. so, so a part of his life. And uh, this is a proposition here. I think that it would be such a wonderful thing to make martial arts um I don't know if you could say mandatory in school, but something that kids could learn Hmm. at a young age where, you know, if they grew up in a household where there were, you know, some preconceived ideas of how you should do something. And a lot of times it's hard for a kid to chip away at that. You know, maybe they learn to do that when they're an adult, but when, you know, in the formative years, they basically, for the most part, are a product of where they grew up and who they grew up with. Mm. And I just feel like, because when I think about what martial arts teaches, 
it's like it teaches kids to, you know, peaceful, nonviolent, you know, mm-hmm. of, you know, um, to be confident and focused. Mm-hmm. And I would I just think it would be so important to teach them something like that. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, you know, I think that is the big misconception about martial arts is that it teaches violence. It absolutely does not. It teaches absolutely the opposite. It teaches self-sufficiency. It teaches confidence. It shows you how to be in your body to create and hold on to inner strength to be unflappable Um, because listen when you are in a fight even a pretend fight right like even you're in a ring you're wearing safety gear you're sparring like when somebody throws a punch at you there's an emotional reaction to that especially the first hundred times it happens, right? And you have to learn how to be okay with that. You have to learn how to master your emotions and your, and your impulses in order to respond in an appropriate way. And so in, in my purview, like those types of lessons are invaluable. So there's a, uh, a quote Actually, this quote is not from your, bat, uh, your dad. You write it in the book. Uh, apparently, it's on a, on a bench across yeah. the way from uh, your dad's um, burial site. Um, yes. And there's a quote, the key to immortality is living a life worth remembering. Mm-hmm. What does it say about your dad that all these years later, we are still fascinated and moved uh, and amazed and have a sense of wonder about your father, Bruce Lee. I mean, I think this is really the the real, um, you know, gold of his legacy, quite frankly, is that what it says is that um, what does it mean to lead a life worth remembering, right? Like to live a life worth remembering. What does that mean? It doesn't really have anything to do with accomplishments because there are lots of people who have made movies. Um, There are lots of people who are martial artists that, that we don't remember today um, or very few people remember today. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But the reason that we like what it is to live a life in a way that is worth remembering is to live a life to your highest ability to your greatest human potential to your um, most expansive version, right? And and yeah, my my minister would say your highest good. Your highest good, right? And and when you do that, you touch people. It's impactful. And you can feel it. Like, I just think it's so interesting, you know, when you watch a Bruce Lee movie, you are you feel it. You yes. feel him. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you just yeah, the first like, time I saw yeah. Enter the Dragon, I was blown away. Just yeah. absolutely blown away. Right. And you're like, wow, who is that guy? You know? <laughs> like, whoa. And it's not just because he, you know, had some awesome fight choreography. There's way more to it than that. And all I can say is that that way more to it came from his diligent self-work. Yeah. And, and yeah. him, not just espousing philosophy, but living philosophy. Hmm. Well, you are keeping this legacy alive in an amazing way. Season two of Warrior, 
which I could not recommend more highly, hmm. premieres Friday, October 2nd on Cinemax. And we got an advanced copy of the book. It comes out October 6th. It's called Be Water, My Friend. Uh, and you will take some wisdom away from it, some wisdom from the great Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Shannon, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate it too. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. There you go, Shannon Lee. And man, I'm telling you, Bruce Lee was, an, he, I was fascinated by him when I was a kid. When I saw Enter the Dragon, I was absolutely blown away. Then I read everything about him. And this book is fantastic. If you want to know the philosophy of Bruce Lee, What uh, made his life special and memorable, Shannon's book, Be Water, My Friend, is unbelievable, unbelievable book. Yeah, yeah. She really just took everything that he wrote and and just embellished with her own life. And it's just such useful information. It's so inspiring. It really is. It really, and, and, you know, talk about a life well lived. Here we are, what is it, 50, 60 years since Bruce Lee died? He died in 73, I think. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's all that time and still this unbelievable fascination with him. I mean, we interviewed the director of uh, of Be Water. uh, That was just called Be Water. Unbelievable documentary. It's like all of it is happening right now, and it's happening at a really important time, I think, in history. And you asked a really good question there, Sue, about what Bruce Lee would be doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I joke that pliability, kind of going with the flow, uh, is one way to deal with the extraordinary uh, circumstances of life right now. You know, I, James Cromwell, mm-hmm. the great actor, once told me, just ride the horse in the direction it's going. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things, swimming upstream uh, is difficult to do. Sometimes you just have to go with the flow. And I think that's one of Bruce Lee's messages. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not so much the issue or the so-called obstacle. It's it's your perception of it yes. and, how, and how you deal with it. And I know for me, and you know, you you joke with me about this. You and Chris, our producer, joke with me about it. How I get all riled up all the time. You do. You're very and, you're and, and easily riled up. I, I I do. I do. And you know, um, I find that um, I get angry with people for being who they are. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and I'm, yet, I'm saying and yet, that, what would yeah. Bruce Lee say? Be who you are. Be who you are. So you know, and, and sounds like you've got I, a problem with acceptance. I, I do, I do. When when people do certain things, sometimes it's like I cannot believe that they're doing this. And this this isn't a joke, but it's it's something that I think is very underrated. The courtesy wave to me is very underrated. What is a courtesy wave? The courtesy wave is when like you're driving in your car and someone wants to get over on the freeway. Oh yeah, and you let them in and they don't give you the courtesy wave uh, in the rear view, right? Yeah. I, I just think it's so disrespectful and like, it, and today it, you know, it was just so, you know, perfect that it happened today. Um, I always think that truckers have it right because they will try to get in front of you. They'll signal and you let them in yeah. and then they'll flash, they'll flash their, their brakes right. to, to say, thank you, you know? And um, so, you know, and it's like, you know, you hold the door open. Sorry, for somebody. Dri- yeah, right, right. Uh, driving in Los Angeles, you're not going to get any thank yous. 
Unfortunately. Well, well, you do. You just don't get them enough. But, you know, and, and the same I was just about to say, like, you know, you, you open a door, you leave the door open for somebody. And then there are the people that will walk in ahead of you and just, you know, let the door go. And you're right behind them. And then there were then there are people that, uh, you know, this happens at work where I'll say where I walk the, the hall to go to the bathroom uh, and there are other businesses there. And I'll say, hey, how you doing? Nothing. Yeah. I'll get yeah. nothing from them. I'm like, no, you at least have to play this game. You at least have to say, pretty good, hope you're doing good too, something like that. You've got to have a response ready to go. But you're right, Sue, it is common courtesy. But you know what I've noticed, though, and this is, you know, and it's fun. I was going to actually talk to Shannon about it. I didn't get a chance to because she's a runner. Being a runner, um, when I run past other runners, I would say 99% of the time we'll wave to one another and acknowledge each other sure. because, hey, you're, hey, we are. You're a runner. I'm a runner. Um, but I find that during this pandemic, when I see people in my neighborhood now and I pass them and people, some people that I don't know, right. they'll wave or they'll say hi and there's an acknowledgement there. And maybe it's because, hey, you know what? We're all in this t- together Yes, <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing. But yeah, that's that's been kind of interesting. To yeah. Me, um, anyway, good good interview, good conversation. I really like her. Um, you know what time it is, Sue? Jacob and Ronnie. Okay, you hear me all the time talking about my friend Jacob and Ronnie, and he is a passionate LA sports fan. Uh, and there's no doubt when it comes to basketball, the right pick in town is the Lakers. If you're injured in an accident. The right pick is to call my man Jacob at 844-24-JACOB. Doesn't matter if it's a car or motorcycle, pedestrian, work accident, whatever the case may be, call Jacob and his team so they can handle all aspects of your case and get you the compensation that you deserve. And don't forget, Jacob is an expert when dealing with Uber and Lyft accidents. In all, Jacob has helped thousands of victims over the past 24 years. Just remember, Jacob is a name to trust when winning is a must. And if you initially picked another lawyer and you're not happy with your current case, call Jacob for a free second opinion. Make the right pick. Call Jacob 24 hours a day, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB, 844-24-JACOB. Or remember the catchy jingle, Accident or injury? Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call Jacob. You're actually growing. You're showing been, some real I've been, growth. I've, I've, I've been rehearsing. <laughs> it sounds much better. You, you know what we need? We need a conductor, and it's unfortunate that we're not in the same room. We've together. got Chris. We've got our, our producer, Chris. I He's know, but I can't see him. He doesn't have his conductor wand. Right. I need for him to look at me, oh, and God. you go, and you do your thing. Oh, God, I can hear him laughing now. All <laughs> right. Uh, that's going to that's gonna wrap up this Culture Pop podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you being out there. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and we will see you next time be sure to subscribe rate and review we'll see you next week for an all-new episode of culture pop